Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. What you're about to listen to is an interview that Adam and I recently conducted as part of our partnership with the Real Estate Forum and their Ref Club Initiative. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to First National Perspective. This is a partnership between First National and the Real Estate Forums. We're kind of on a monthly basis. Adam and I will have the pleasure of sort of diving into the commercial real estate finance world. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Brian Kimmel, who is the capital T expert in finance on retirement homes and senior living. Of course, Brian's been with First National for, I don't know, what, 50 or 60 years, something like that. <laughs> and it's six and a half years to be okay. exact. And this is fun for Adam and I, as I think a lot of you know, you know, Adam and I get the opportunity to interview a lot of people around the real estate community. Very infrequently do we get to interview a friend. So it's nice to have somebody that's familiar and you know, a comrade at First National. So Brian, thanks for coming and doing this for us. So I guess I think given this is the first of a few, we're going to do these First Nationals perspectives on kind of a, a monthly basis, plus or minus. And so I thought it was useful for some people perhaps to just have a general understanding of the business that is First National. And I'll try to do this elevator pitch in, within you know a minute or two. Founded 31, 32 years ago now by gentlemen named Stephen Smith and Maury Taz. You know, it truly is one of the big Canadian private business success stories you know, Stephen and more, I think, are probably familiar to many, many people in our industry and outside our industry. Stephen Smith now has a business school called Smith's Queen's School of Business. Maury, of course, is you know one of the more successful vineyard owners in the country with Taz Winery. Both have moved on to wonderful things and are still very actively involved in our business on a day-to-day basis. One of Maury's favorite pastimes is actually making fun of Brian and his, his ability to pick hockey players in fantasy pools. So there's a lot of camaraderie there. You know, the success of First National, I think, is just interesting. And this I'm really just doing this to set the stage. Why is First National given the opportunity to offer this to him? the perspective and I'll focus on the commercial space. But of course, you know, I think everybody is familiar that we do have the largest non-bank residential mortgage business in the country as well. On the commercial space, we've got 35 plus or minus billion dollars under admin. I don't know exactly what our biggest second competitor would be to that, but it's it's much smaller. We do have certainly the largest mortgage portfolio in the country. And then on a new origination side, which is both where Brian and Adam make their living, we originated 9.17, so $9.2 billion of new origination last year. I don't know for sure. And yeah, anybody that's online listening in one form or fashion can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's almost double the next closest originator of commercial mortgages in the country. We do mortgages across every corner of the country, every mortgage product from you know very tight price life insurance company quality loans all the way through the spectrum to bridge loans, to second mortgages, to sort of mezzanine financing, every asset class. Like we really are the commercial real estate debt experts across the country and have expertise at every facet, geography, asset class, what you name it. Hope that's enough. Guys, I miss anything? Want to add anything to that? That's pretty good. Okay. So I'm setting the stage. I don't want people to be like, why am I listening to these guys talk about this stuff? What value do they bring? So I want everybody to appreciate that we do literally have the insight on what's going on in the commercial debt market across the country. Today, Brian is here to talk about retirement homes, senior living. Brian is the expert in this space, quote unquote. There is nobody else that understands this business better than he does. Brian was a guest on Adam and our podcast, the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, a few years ago. 
So if you are wanting to go find out more about Brian's background and you know just where he's been in his career, you can most certainly go and dig that up. Very easy to find on any podcast distributor, Spotify or what have you. So go and search that. Maybe in three minutes, Brian, just for those that are listening now, give us a quick background on you know where you've been and how you ended up where you are today. Okay. Well, I started my career after school working for a bank, actually CIBC. I worked there for a couple of years. And my famous story is they trained me for a year. And at the end of the training session, they said, Brian, what part of the bank do you want to work in? I was working in the commercial lending side, but specifically what area do you want to be in? So I said, well, I really want to be in real estate because that's what interests me. So classic bank, they put me in natural resources which I knew nothing about. And within about a year, I was gone. And I moved over to a real estate developer. And that was in the late 80s when real estate was going crazy. And then within about 18 months, we had a real estate crash of uh, 89, 1990. That was a really difficult crash. Our company was one of the largest real estate developers in Canada, got decimated. And at that point in time, I was fortunate enough to move to a new employer who was the, at that time, the largest seniors housing developer in the country called Central Park Lodges. So I think I moved to Central Park Lodges in about 91 and I became their treasurer. And my job was to raise money on seniors housing assets. I didn't really not know much about seniors housing. I knew a fair bit about real estate. And when you learn about seniors housing, it's part real estate, but it's more so of a business of caring for seniors. So you've got that added business risk. So I learned quite a lot about seniors housing back in those days. We uh, had Canadian and American assets, which was very interesting. But unfortunately, the company sold off its assets. It first sold its American company, then its Canadian company. While I was there, I had the fortune to meet Stephen Smith and Maury Taz because we did a big CMHC financing through First National, who at the time seemed to be the only institution in Canada that was really interested in seniors housing and had expertise with CMHC. So we had done some financing with them. I got to know them really well. I quite liked them. And when our company got sold, they offered me a position to move over to First Nationals. I was 19, the fall of 1994. So I thought it would be a short-term gig until I moved on to something else. And that short-term gig turned into a long-term gig because here I am. 26 years later, still doing it. <laughs> and hopefully it's not still looking for your next gig. <laughs> hopefully <laughs> you give it up at some point, you know, it settled in. I do love Brian's backstory. And as Aaron mentioned, we did do a deep dive with him on this issue. You know, his whole story, a lot of the horror stories of the 90s, uh, very interesting stuff. We're not going to do it today due to time, but you know, maybe we'll talk about a more current a horror story. I hate to use that word, but COVID and long-term care centers has obviously been in the news quite a bit. So I feel that having Brian on now is the perfect timing. I know you have a strong opinion on how that's been handled, and we definitely want to get into that. But maybe just set the stage leading into COVID, the State of the Union of Seniors Housing. So call this end of 2019, and then maybe lead into what happened for COVID. Okay. So it's a long story. You got 35 minutes left. So so yeah, so let's look at end of 19 pre-COVID. So the seniors housing business is booming. And let me separate the seniors housing business into two primary components. You have privately funded retirement homes dominated by large private owners, a lot of them public companies, some of them pension funds, no government funding involved in that operation. And then you have the publicly funded long-term care homes. 
when I say that, they're funded by various provinces under their provincial health ministries. So every province does it a little bit differently. But the, the common denominator is that they're all highly funded by the government. And actually, interestingly enough, in all provinces, there is a co-payment from residents. So it's not 100% funded by the government, but it's primarily funded by governments, very highly regulated. And basically, occupancies across the country are in excess of 100%. And the reason for that is the uh, various provinces have not been able to build enough beds to meet the demands of seniors for long-term care. And that's one of the reasons why the private retirement home business has been booming so much, because essentially there are no long-term care beds being developed in the country. Why are there no long-term care beds being developed is because every bed that has to be developed has to be subsidized and funded by provincial governments. And they're all running out of money. We all know they're running out of money. And so they really don't have much money to reinvest in long-term care. And so we have a very stagnant long-term care industry with not a lot of new development, but we have a very dynamic retirement home industry that doesn't have the same shackles of government. The problem with the private retirement home industry is it's not very affordable. I mean, it's very expensive to develop retirement housing in this country, no matter where it is. You have beautiful amenities in these retirement homes. They're all private rooms with private washrooms, oftentimes they're suites costs a lot of money to develop these things, and therefore you have to charge a lot of money in rent. And so really what the problem with retirement homes, it's, it's only serving probably the top 5 to 10% of our seniors' population and wealth, whereas long-term care is made affordable to everybody because of the government subsidies. So anybody who can't really afford to be in the uh, top 5 to 10% of wealth in this country really has no choice but to move into long-term care. And I can tell you, for example, pre-COVID in Ontario, the average wait list to get into long-term care was about two years. So that's setting up what you've got, where you've got all these pressures in long-term care. There's not enough beds. The, the provinces are trying to figure out how to develop new beds. In addition, we've got this big problem of a lot of very old buildings let me use Ontario as the best example because that's where we have the most long-term care homes in the country. And being located in Toronto, I have a lot of more direct experience in Ontario than some of the other provinces. But we have a lot of old buildings that really need to be torn down and rebuilt. A lot of those old buildings are small and they have two, three, or four people to a room. This is all pre-COVID. So even pre-COVID, that was a bad idea to have two, three, or four people in a room. Oftentimes, you have people who are very ill and or have dementia. And because there's nowhere for these people to go, they're being put in, let's call it, homes that really maybe are not providing the appropriate care. Before we keep going, let's, can we just distinguish between, I think, I think a lot of people group long-term care and retirement homes, senior living into just one big bucket. Right. Maybe right. just define what the okay. true distinctions yeah. are. So my distinction is it's all about government funding and regulation. Long-term care homes are all funded by governments, very heavily subsidized by governments, very heavily regulated by governments. So you really can't do much in a long-term care home that the government doesn't regulate. Whereas retirement homes, there's no government funding as a rule. So it's all private pay. There are generally very little regulation. 
There's a couple provinces that regulate if you want to provide a high level of care. But again, if I go to Ontario, you can provide long-term care level of care in a retirement home without any type of licensing or any type of care licensing. So really that's the distinction. And as I said before, because the governments are running out of money, they have been unable to develop a successful strategy to increase the stockpile of long-term care beds in this country. And so all the slack is being picked up by retirement homes, the private retirement home operators who can develop because they don't need government funding. But what they do need is wealthy seniors. And there are a lot of wealthy seniors in this country. But one thing that we're really missing in this country is we're not serving the middle and low income seniors because those seniors, their really only choices are to go into government subsidized long-term care beds. As I think I just said, generally the long-term care beds across this country pre-COVID were 100% occupied. So let's say I'm a wealthy retiree, but I need particular care. Can I get that in a retirement home or do yes, I have to yes. go into the long-term care? Just put some dollars and cents yeah, to sure, it. Sure. Just so, to talk so, about so that's a good what question. the distinction is. So again, let's talk about Ontario. There are lots of retirement homes in Ontario that offer high levels of care equivalent to what you could get in a long-term care home and maybe even beyond what you can get in a long-term care home as long as you can afford to pay for it. So let's use the example of a resident who has a significant case of Alzheimer's or some form of dementia that is advanced. In Ontario, as well as other provinces, we actually have some seniors housing operators who have built private memory care buildings that exclusively care for seniors with dementia and other types of Alzheimer's. And therefore, you're bypassing the long-term care system, which is traditionally where these people who need heavy care needs would be taken care of. However, the problem is the cost. So if I had to guess what it would cost to care for your loved one in a private retirement home that has memory care, high-level dementia care, you're probably starting at $8,000 a month and maybe going as high as twelve or 14000 a month. Let's compare that now to a private room in a long-term care home where you would be looking at something like $2,500 a month. So a massive difference, but I would say to you that if you could afford it, you'd be much better off in that private retirement home where you're getting care that is appropriate to your loved one. Whereas in the long-term care side, the government is limited to how much care they can provide, a home can provide to somebody who needs heavy care because the government does not have enough funds to fund the right amount of care for people who have heavy care needs. The long-term care homes were in crisis even before COVID, and now COVID has just magnified it exponentially. Whereas if you looked at private retirement homes, for the most part, they have done very well through COVID. There has not been a lot of outbreaks and they've managed their systems very well. And I think that really speaks volumes to the difference between the two. Yeah. And you can see the media reaction that it does get lumped into one. It's just presented as yes. seniors care. This is where yeah. the disasters are when it definitely does have uh, two different outcomes, depending on your ability to, to carry the $2,500 a month or $10,000 a month, which is quite the gap. 
we set the stage. Obviously, COVID did a lot of damage in the long-term care homes. Can you talk about where we are now? We're a year in, of course, to COVID. Has the government got a better handle on the long-term care with containing COVID or minimizing some of the outbreaks? Has the situation improved? Where do you see it now? Very good question. So a lot of negatives and a few positives. So let's talk about why COVID was so devastating in long-term care homes from my own personal perspective. I think there was two main reasons. Number one, I talked about a lot of these old homes where people are not in private rooms. The vast majority of long-term care beds in this country are not private rooms. They are shared rooms with two people, maybe as many as four people, or sometimes there's a private room with a shared washroom. That is almost unheard of in the retirement side. The vast majority of retirement home units, private washroom, private unit. So immediately you're able to isolate a case where you have found infection in retirement home much more easily than you can in long-term care. That's a huge issue. And it's a huge issue for future redevelopment of long-term care. There's no doubt if we're going to rebuild long-term care homes, which we are going to in this country and we need to do in this country, they all have to be built in private rooms with private washrooms. But that is not the program. That's a real serious issue, in my opinion. The other issue was staffing. So staffing in long-term care homes, very highly unionized. There's a lot of what they call PSWs, personal support workers, who are working in multiple homes. And so if one of those personal support workers gets sick, number one, they're low income, they feel they need to work, they might be coming in sick. And if they're coming in sick, they're transmitting COVID to not only one home, but in multiple homes. This is much less prevalent in the retirement home industry. So we didn't have as much transmission from staffing in retirement homes as we did in uh, long-term care homes. Now, the good news is the government recognized this issue early and has pretty well put a stop to it such that it's pretty well now forbidden for a worker to work in multiple homes. That way they can't create havoc in more than just the home they're working in. And it's much easier to monitor people who are sick when they're full-time employees working in that home. So that part has been a positive I would say the next positive, the biggest positive is the vaccine. I mean, really the only way we get out of this mess is to vaccinate everybody who goes into long-term care, everybody who lives in long-term care, everybody who works in long-term care, everybody who visits their loved ones in long-term care. And that is the government program. That is the government's priority. And I think the government has been very good. Again, I'm talking about Ontario, but I think all the provinces are pretty similar. The government has been very good at uh, rolling out vaccines into long-term care. I know that there's been some criticism, but I personally think they've done a good job. And now that they've pretty well vaccinated everybody in long-term care homes, they're now moving into the retirement homes. And I know my mother-in-law, for example, who's in a retirement home, has got both of her shots already. And at some point, my wife, who is her primary caregiver, We'll also get a shot, I hope, but that's probably not for a while. But that's a big deal in terms of turning the tide. But what it doesn't solve, it doesn't solve the problem of all these old homes with multiple residents in a single room. We're going to have uh, the variants of COVID, even with the vaccine, 
still has potential to do a lot of harm to long-term care residents. And here's the other issue that nobody's been talking about. There's a lot of turnover in long-term care homes and retirement homes as people pass away or move for other reasons. And what's happened is the rollout of the vaccine was kind of a one-time thing. So now, six months from now, you take a long-term care home with 100 people in it. Six months from now, there could have been 30 people turned over in that home. And the question is, how do we vaccinate those new 30 people? I haven't seen the plan on how that's going to happen. So there are a lot of weaknesses in the vaccination program. That being said, I think they're doing the best they can. I'll tell you another interesting story. I just had one of my best friend's parents just moved into a retirement home, even though they really didn't want to. But the reason why did they move in? Because by moving in, they were able to get the vaccine. Even though they're over 80, as of a couple of days ago, there is no plan to vaccinate them anytime in the near future. But by getting into a retirement home, they were actually able to get their vaccines almost right away. So that was a very interesting scenario for people who were thinking of putting their parents into uh, seniors housing. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. It's what, February 16th, 2021 now. So I think just yesterday or today, they started to announce just there's 400,000 more vaccines on a weekly basis by Pfizer, and they're developing some strategy. My dog's in the background barking. I just want to remind those that are participating live, you know, this is also supposed to be a Q&A, so please put your questions into the chat and we'll get to some of the questions later the end of the interview with Brian. And of course, you know, this is the first national financial perspective. So we will start talking about debt too, because I think that's obviously an important component to all of this. But why don't we just finish this off, Brian, and maybe let's solutionize, for lack of a better word, and just clearly there are serious discrepancies between what the retirement homes are providing and what the the long-term care facilities are providing. I mean, clearly one's private and expensive, one's subsidized and less expensive. How do you, how do you, bring them together. I mean, clearly you've got, you know, partners and clients of yours that would like to participate in the long-term care facilities. Is it a a government relationship issue? Like what is the challenge? And maybe how do we get over the hump where we can start providing more LTC beds and stop having rooms of four people in them? Like where where do we go to, to fix it, to fix the problem? Before you do that, Brian, maybe let's just acknowledge, I think in some weird twisted way, the realities of COVID have at least helped highlight the issues we've got here, yes. right? Yes. If anything, it really shown a light on the fact yes. that you know this is a real problem. It was yeah. a problem before COVID, but I think yeah. people were kind of just ignoring it and now they can't. So maybe just use that as a springboard to the rest of the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. One of the points I wanted to make is one of the positives that has come out of COVID for long-term care is that the whole world sees now long-term care as a problem and it's primarily a government funding problem. There's just not enough money out there that is being allocated to take care of our seniors. And I think the whole world now sees that. And I think it's basically number one issue in the political discussions right now. And I think that's a great thing because that can only do good for our seniors if we can see our governments investing more money in long-term care. That being said, my own opinion is I don't have a lot of confidence in governments at all to create a successful long-term care strategy such that we can create more beds to seniors who need them and can afford them. I just don't see the governments being able to execute at all on that. 
so therefore, my own hope is that I see the bigger opportunities is in the private retirement sector working on more affordable units. So I'm starting to see more models out there that are creating more affordable units in the retirement home sector. So I'll give you an example. What we've been seeing in retirement home development over the past 10 years is more and more luxurious unions as seniors are wealthier and demanding better and better amenities. So we're seeing homes that have beautiful dining rooms, indoor swimming pools, sometimes indoor bowling alleys, always have beautiful feeders, lots of amenity space, golf simulator. These are places that are highly desirable, multiple places for dining. And if you can afford them, that's an unbelievable way to retire. But unfortunately, as I said, the data is that only about 5% of seniors can really afford this. How do we scale this down and create a more affordable model? Well, obviously, you can scale down those amenities. You can scale down your building. So the building, let's call it, isn't quite as luxurious as some of the beautiful buildings we're seeing being developed in seniors housing right now in retirement. And the other thing we can do, which kind of goes against the grain, is to build smaller rooms, smaller room sizes. I can tell you, I've been doing this a long time. And one of the big changes that's happened in both retirement and long-term care is the demand for room sizes has changed dramatically. When I first started at Central Park Lodges in 1991, the vast majority of our rooms were our studios of about 250 square feet. And those, even though they weren't the greatest, were very affordable. Today, you can go into two bedrooms that are 1,200 square feet, two bedrooms, two bathrooms, separate dining. Those units could easily cost $10,000 a month. And there's no question that that's where seniors would like to be. But the reality is most seniors can't afford that. So we have a couple of clients who are toying with a model with less amenities and smaller rooms to make them more affordable. And I think that is where we have to go to create more opportunities for middle income seniors to be cared for. I think the only downside to that is that there's no real model like that that can care for somebody who has advanced dementia. If you have advanced illness or advanced dementia or advanced other illness, the only place you can really go outside of hospital is in long-term care or one of these specialized type dementia care units, which are very expensive. Those people are going to have very limited options, but for seniors who are somewhat mobile, they don't have too much acuity, then I think the affordable model in retirement has a better chance of serving them than the building out of the long-term care system, which is literally just going to take years because of government inertia. And the problem, of course, is we don't have years. The impacts of COVID obviously accelerated a lot of these problems right in the precipice of the biggest wave of retirement via the boomers, of course already underway and will continue for another 10 or 15 years. Quite a moment in history for seniors care. Aaron did mention we're going to get into finance. Of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't. What's the current lending environment for seniors? What's the appetite for people providing uh, mortgage funds? How's underwriting changed since COVID really impacted the world of retirement? Can you give us a snapshot of where we are right now? If I owned a building and came to you for finance? 
Okay. Well, so again, we have to separate the world of financing of private retirement homes and the world of financing of publicly funded long-term care homes, because once again, very, very different. So let's talk about where all the action is, which is in private retirement home lending. There's just been a boom of new retirement home development all across the country over the past 10 years. So the financing market generally has been very healthy. What we've seen is the industry is starting to be dominated by about 10 or 12 very large operators. The reason being is because, as I said before, when you're building these large retirement homes with all these amenities, it's very expensive to build. We're talking buildings that could range from anywhere from $50 million to $150 million to build. So that's really taken all the mom and pop operators out of the system. When I first started at First National in 94, Central Park Lodges was the largest operator in Canada. And we had, I think, something like 15 properties. Now you have Chartwell, who I believe has 200 properties in Canada. So the market has changed very dramatically. So dominated by the big guys, they have done an unbelievable job of building beautiful homes across the country, lots of different options for seniors for independent living. As I said, the financing market is very robust. There's lots of liquidity for good seniors home operators out there, both for existing debt on existing homes and for new construction. CMHC is still very active in the retirement home market. They'll do retirement homes across the country. They tend to want to work with established operators. I would say that the one downside is it's hard for new operators to break in. Most lenders, including CMHC, want an operator slash developer who's had existing experience. So if you were to break in, probably your best bet is to partner up with an existing operator developer in the industry so you can learn the business. And we've seen some very successful examples of that happening. The other thing that's happened in in retirement over COVID, uh, despite the fact that we haven't seen that many difficult outbreaks across the country, we're definitely seeing more vacancy. And the reason we're seeing more vacancy is because for a long time, in most jurisdictions across the country, they were ceasing new admissions during the worst of COVID. So really, people couldn't be admitted into retirement housing, even if they wanted to. When they change the rules, the rules generally are that if you're going to go into a retirement home, they don't really want you touring the home. So you have to do tours online, which is very hard for seniors. Seniors aren't good at doing online tours. And then if you go in the home, you have to quarantine for 14 days in your room. So it's really difficult to put a new senior in a retirement home right now during the COVID period. And despite this, the operators, I think, have done a great job of trying to maintain their occupancies and trying to sell what they're providing, the care they're providing to seniors. I would say to you that a typical home that we look at If that home was running in the low to mid 90% occupancy pre-COVID, probably by the end of 2020, they're down about 10%. So they're down to, uh, if they started at 92, they may be down to about 82. Everybody's different, but that's kind of typical of what we see out there. But the good news is, as underwriters, you know, we can see through that. You know, we obviously know why this is happening. And what we've been doing to offset that from an underwriting perspective is we're looking at the occupancy history. So if we can show a good occupancy history of that home 
over a number of years, and we can clearly show that the COVID period was an anomaly, we can pretty well underrate that home at where the occupancy should be, not where it is today. I think the other issue when we're underwriting retirement is there's been significant increase in expenses due to dealing with COVID, a significant increase in PPE expenses. So we'll see that in supplies. Uh, we'll also see a significant increase in wages. There's been a number of programs to increase wages of their care staff. But I would argue, again, that a lot of those are a one-time costs. A lot of the PPE costs that have been expended are not going to be expended to the same level going forward into the future. And same thing with some of the wage costs. There was some special bonus wages paid to care staff, and, and very deservingly, that probably are not going to carry through into 2021 or 2022 as all residents get inoculated and we don't see the same effects of COVID. So we're able to see through that for the most part and we're able to underwrite, I would say, very successful on, on the retirement side. What about valuations, Brian? Where are valuations right now? Cap rates holding? Are there yeah. trades going on? Like, are yeah, are people good, transacting in this space? Like, yeah, what's that look a good like? question. First of all, very little transactions happening. So we haven't been able to get a really good gauge of where valuations are from actual transactions. But the transactions we have seen, I would say cap rates are stable. I would say to you, pre-COVID, for a new retirement home property in an urban location, you're looking at a five to five and a half cap rate on that property. I would say I'd be very surprised if that's changed at all in today's market. First of all, those are very hard to come by. Very few ever of those go up for sale. And if they do go up for sale, there's usually quite a long list of players who would like to buy those properties. A little bit different, there's also a market for older properties. We've seen a number of transactions where older retirement homes are being sold off by some of the bigger operators who want to focus in on their newer homes. And the smaller operators are scooping in to buy those properties. So they trade at a significantly higher cap rate. So maybe we move from five and a half to seven and a half cap rate. But still, I would say those cap rates have remained relatively solid through the COVID period. So I would say the retirement home sector has been amazingly stable despite a lot of pressure that this pandemic has put on retirement home operators. What we've seen in apartments and in industrial is that valuations have you know, absolutely held, if not gotten even better. Big part of that, of course, is financing costs have plummeted. Has seniors followed the same trajectory? If you're financing a building just before COVID or now, how much has financing costs gone down in that time frame? I would say exactly the same going on in retirement. So for example, if we, you know, a lot of retirement housing is financed through CMHC. If you have CMHC insurance, then the retirement home operators are basically going to be able to access the same low rates as apartment owners. So, I mean, generally they're going to be accessing sub 2% interest rates, which are, you know, unbelievable. And even on the conventional side, once we got over the first phase one of COVID, where the market kind of seized up for a few months, the market has come back very nicely. And I would say that on the conventional side, you know, the good retirement home operators are able to access debt at very good pricing, not the same level as apartment owners, because there's obviously there's more business risk involved in retirement home operations than in apartment operations, but still very low rates. So from that perspective, Adam, the environment has been very good for retirement home operators. 
We've got about seven, eight minutes left. Brian, I don't know if this is a fair question or not. It's just on my mind. I think it's demographic related. You know, we've got this big wave of baby boomers, which of course is really obvious. We talked about transactions and, you know, you said older properties being kind of in vogue, so to speak. There's also a ton of development going on, right? There's a ton of this product being provided to the marketplace. Do you not have the same issue as you did with education back in the 60s when we built all these schools for the baby boomers and then 20 years later, there's nobody to use them? Like, what's the industry talking about? Is there a 40-year horizon where, you know, for the first 20 years, it's retirement home and then we're going to convert to apartment because I'm not going to have the same number of users? I'm always curious how real estate absorbs the demographic challenges that we experience. That's a great question, Aaron. I would say to you that here's a problem with any development. The development time frame is so long, right? Could take minimum three years, but probably six or seven years from planning to actually opening up a new retirement home. During that six or seven years, you could go through two business cycles and two cases of pandemics. Nobody really knows. So when you have those long development cycles, you're obviously going to have periods where you've got supply issues. There's no question that in some markets in Canada, particularly around the GTA, we've got some overbuilding going on because of this long time frame for development. And everybody's anticipating the boomers. The problem is with the boomers is they're not coming yet. So here's one of the facts of retirement housing. When I first started with Central Park Lodges, our average resident was about 78 years of age. Today, the average resident is about 88. So the oldest boomers right now, I think, are about 75 years. I'm a boomer, but I'm, at the, I'm the youngest boomer. The oldest boomers are about 75 years old. They've got at least 10 years, maybe 15 years before they start hitting retirement. So you need to bridge that gap. And so how do you bridge that gap? Well, one of the successful ways to bridge that gap is to bring in younger seniors. How do you bring in younger seniors? That is nirvana for retirement home developers. How do you bring in younger seniors? First of all, affordability is one, and then younger seniors. Well, you bring in younger seniors by creating more lifestyle options like seniors' apartments. So what we're seeing today, which I think the developers are in this industry are just, I think, are amazing, is what they're doing is they're saying, okay, I want to build a retirement home, but I know I've got to bridge all these boomers that are not coming into my full service retirement home for another 10 or 15 years. So this is what I'm going to do. I need to bring in seniors who are not 87, but 77. And I'm going to do that by building pure seniors apartments. So I'm going to have one building of traditional retirement. And right next door, I'm going to have a building of seniors apartments, fully independent. These people could still be working for a living, going to work every day. But here's the beauty. Right next door, is all the services you will need if you get ill. I'll tell you what's more common in a uh, relationship. One of the spouses is not aging very well and the other one is aging quite well. They do not want to go into a retirement home because of the well spouse that's not an appropriate setting. So what's a great setting is to go to this senior's apartment where both spouses can live the lives that they want to lead. The well spouse can continue to live their life and go to work and do whatever they need to do. The unwell spouse can go right next door and get all the care services they need. They can get dining services if they want it. And it's an unbelievable model. To me, it's the way of the future of new seniors development. We're going to start bringing in younger seniors. And that is going to bridge the gap from the baby boomers who got another 10 years to go before they're going to go in full service retirement. And when they do, 
we will not be able to build enough retirement homes to house all those people. I can tell you right now, first of all, they're going to be the wealthiest generation ever. They will not be looking for long-term care beds. They'll be looking for private retirement, high-end retirement. They'll have a lot of money to spend and there'll be a ton of them. Well, my question ties into that then. The idea of getting ahead of trends. If Aaron and I uh, pooled together the handful of dollars we've got to our name and gave it to you to invest in this space, what geography and which sector are you putting it in front of to maximize the $85 that Aaron and I can put together you know, between the two of us? Here's my advice to you and Aaron. This is what you do. You buy a home in the city of Toronto somewhere <laughs> or the greater Toronto area or maybe anywhere within 250 kilometers of Toronto. And you hold on to that place for about 30 years till you're ready to retire into a retirement home. When you've sold it and you've paid off your mortgage, you will have more than enough money to use that money to have yourself a very nice retirement in one of these beautiful retirement homes. Yeah, the problem, Brian, who's buying that house in 25 years from now? Adam and I have $85 combined. I can't afford a $3 million home. That's a whole other issue for the residential mortgage sector. I'm not qualified to solve that problem. Maybe some residential mortgage brokers here to uh, solve that problem. With the amenities you're ramming off, I got to put that as a goal to make sure that I end up in the high-end place and not the LTC, of course. I think we are at the end of the time scheduled for wider broadcast. Up next, we do have questions coming from just Ref Club members. So I would remind everybody that Ref Club is great value and one of the benefits you'll get for this ongoing series, not just the First National, but many other companies at the forefront of the industry. You'll get the opportunity to ask questions directly of the people that are making and shaping in the industry. So it's the start of the year. If you want to stay on top of everything, Ref Club is a fantastic opportunity to do so. I'm going to thank Brian for his time today. He's going to stay on with us for the questions, but I'll thank Brian now. He is a great resource, very knowledgeable. And every time Aaron and I have talked to him, it's been fantastic. So thank you so much, Brian. My pleasure, guys. Hey, everybody. That's the end of our interview that we did with the Ref Club. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.